Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this day, life only, we are all of all people most to be pitied. Please be seated. While it might not be perfectly evident, this is not a rerun of Easter. This is part of the In the Beginning series. But as I was looking at what I wanted to say around the text that, Lord willing, we will come to next Sunday morning, I wanted to sort of have this extended introduction, and I thought I would uh, spare you having a you know 10-page sermon when a five-page sermon will do just fine. So um, this is kind of part one. It's part 6a, as you can see. We'll be looking at part 6b next week when we get into Genesis 2. But I was looking at our website this week, and the website led with a statement, we all heard the Bible stories, but modern opinions from geologists, archaeologists, and historians often allow a different perspective on ancient religious texts. Far from an attempt to debunk these stories, this is simply a look at the theories and alternate explanations for some of the miracles and mysterious events in the Bible. Now, before I proceed, I want to note that most of these so-called modern opinions are not modern at all, at least in the sense that they've been offered up for a couple hundred years now as possible explanations for the miracles recorded in Scripture. For as long as there have been people who want to question or even deny the authority, sufficiency, and inspiration of Scripture, there have been these alternate theories put forward to explain how things that just could not happen apart from the power of God happened apart from the power of God. And more importantly, I want to make clear that this introductory portion, I'm going to share some things with you. These are not my opinions. I don't believe that any of these alternative ideas offer a remotely a justifiable understanding of the miracles and other events that are recorded in Scripture. So, having said that, in no particular order, in Exodus 16, when the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, God responded to Moses saying, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So the point of what's about to happen is that it is not something 
that they would attribute to natural causes. God is about to step in and do something that would help his people to know that he is Yahweh, your God. Then in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, on the ground, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. But according to some, What's being spoken of in this passage in Exodus 16 is the sap of the tamarisk tree secreted through holes that were bored into the bark of that tree by wood lice and then secreted overnight when it's cool so that the people could come and sort of pick it off the trees. Of course, we have no reason whatsoever to believe that. There's not that many tamarisk trees about in the area where the Israelites would have been wandering, and probably not nearly enough sap to actually account for the feeding of about a million plus people. Someone else has suggested that a naturally occurring sweet edible crystalline carbohydrate that's created by a whole slew of organisms such as bacteria, fungi, plants, and a parasitic beetle called the Trihala mana, which beetle, by the way, was named after the biblical word manna, might be responsible for this miracle, which they refuse to accept as a miracle, but would rather just believe that some natural phenomenon must account for this. Or consider Joshua 3, verses 9 and following. Joshua said to the people, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and he without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites and the Jebusites. Notice again the repetition of that idea. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. Now I suppose it's possible that what Joshua is about to do is say, when you wake up in the morning and you step outside and the sun is still shining, you could know that God is among you and that he's going to deliver you, but that doesn't seem to be it is absolutely not the force of this text. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan... The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. And I quote Colin Humphreys, Cambridge professor of material science, has studied this miracle in great detail, not great enough, I would add, and notes 
that the text supplies a number of unusual clues, including the fact that the water was blocked up a great distance away at a particular town. He has identified this with a location where the Jordan has been known to temporarily dam up when strong earthquakes cause mudslides, most recently in 1927. For many scientists, the fact that God is working through natural processes makes the miracle more palatable. More palatable and I believe somewhat less miraculous than the story given us in God's inspired word where the moment that the priest's feet actually touched the water, the water stopped and Israel crossed on dry ground. Not only that, it stopped for long enough that the whole nation, so, you know, again, a million plus people were able to cross the Jordan on dry ground and those 12 men that Joshua had appointed were able to take large stones and to build a cairn in the middle of where the water of the river normally flowed as a memorial to what God had done in that place. A mudslide could possibly divert some of the Jordan for a time, but it wouldn't last, it wouldn't be long enough, and certainly the bed of the river would not be dry. And these are just two examples. Others might include the water from the rock coming from a large sandstone foundation that had developed a cement-like outer crust known as desert varnish. So when Moses struck the rock, which according to Paul, that rock which followed them was Christ, so there's a whole symbolism here. But in reality, what happened, Moses just hammered on that desert varnish with his staff until that crust broke, and then the water that was already contained in the sandstone began to flow out again enough water to quench the thirst of over a million people. This one is one of my favorites, the story of the burning bush. Remember where Moses is out in the wilderness tending his sheep and he sees a bush that is burning and not consumed, so he goes over to see what this strange event is all about and as he draws close to the bush, God speaks to him and says, take off your shoes for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground which Moses then does, and God proceeds to commission him to go to Egypt and to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, as it turns out, what this probably was, was yeah, a cluster of acacia bushes that were on top of a volcanic vent and as the heat from the vent went up, it burned the bush, but the bush was burned to charcoal, and so it was still there and there was fire, but you could still see the bones of the bush in that fire. And just in case you were wondering if that wasn't ridiculous enough, if you were wondering about the voice that spoke to Moses at the burning bush, Benny Shannon, a researcher at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, posits that there are two plants near Sinai, including our friend the acacia, that have the same psychoactic molecules as ahayuska, which is known to produce overwhelming religious experiences like hearing voices and meeting God. So, concludes Eamon Lahiri, the author of the article, and I quote, yep, that's right, Moses was maybe just high. So, pretty remarkable, really, 
Um, he comes to a burning bush which is not consumed. It's really a burning bush that is being fully consumed. And he gets high from the smoke. And he hears a voice telling him to go down into Egypt and to deliver the people of God, to bring them up out of slavery and into the promised land. Some very detailed instruction for a guy who's just tripping. Um, and based on that, based on Moses smoking some interesting tobacco, we have the entire story of the Exodus and all of divine revelation that springs from it and the list of these so-called scientific explanations and put scientific in scare quotes, please, they are not scientific. This list could go on and on. As it turns out, the shadow of the sun turning back 10 steps on the sundial of Ahaz was not a miraculous phenomenon. It was merely passing dark clouds which covered the sun at the point where the angle was just so and made it appear that the angle went backwards on the steps. And the fire that fell from heaven on Elijah's sacrifice, just a very lucky and well-timed lightning strike. One more, and again I quote, the fleeing Hebrews could have benefited from a freak natural occurrence wherein strong sustained winds over a stretch of the Red Sea at the right location could have momentarily caused the water to bend backwards and expose a land bridge that could be crossed on foot, thus allowing the Israelites to free, flee. End quote. So we have a story in the book of Exodus where the people of Israel have fled from Egypt, they've gone up into the wilderness. Moses has led them through, and they've come to the edge of the Red Sea. And actually, God has led them there. Remember that pillar of, of cloud during the daytime and fire at night? God led them there. And when they look back and they see Pharaoh's armies pursuing them from out of the desert, they, they realize they're in trouble. Their back is to the sea, and they're facing an army that is arguably the most powerful army on the earth at that time. And so God moves that pillar of cloud and fire around to the other side, and he comes between, he intervenes. Now, the, the people who believe that it was just a well-timed wind, I don't know how they explain that that pillar of cloud and fire actually led them, rested at times on the tabernacle, then raised up and moved, and when the pillar moved, the people moved. I'm not, I'm not sure what they do with that. I think they pretty much just ignore it. But in this case, it moved behind the people of Israel. Moses cries out to God. God says, what are you crying about? Just take that staff that's in your hand and raise it over the sea, and when you do, I will deliver you. And so Moses raises his staff over the sea. The sea parts, we're told very graphically, there are walls of water on both sides as the people of Israel pass through on dry ground. But what we're supposed to believe, because we wouldn't want to attribute something like that to the power of God, is that a freak accident, a freak wind blew the water back at just the right time so that the people of Israel could flee through it. Most of the people who hold to this theory believe that they were actually crossing one of the gulfs at the northern tip of the Red Sea, not the Red Sea itself. And so they were really crossing through an area where the water was probably no more than a few feet deep anyway. 
So maybe the miracle is that when the wind stopped blowing and the waters came back, Pharaoh's armies were drowned in three or four feet of water, evidently forgetting that all they had to do was stand up. Now, all of those stories and many, many more are given those kinds of explanations by people who just don't want to believe that this is the word of God. And that what God says he did, he did. As we saw in the early sermons on this series in Genesis, and God said, and it was so. And that applies not only to the creation, but it applies to all of these events that happen in Scripture. And next week, if the Lord is willing, when we come to Genesis 2, we're going to note that people have offered similar explanations for the miracles that are described there too. In fact, these so-called demythologized explanations have been offered for probably every event in Scripture that appears to have a miraculous or a supernatural character. And if I'm honest, what amazes me more than anything, and it actually serves as a kind of apologetic proof for the divine nature of God's word, is that so many people feel compelled to try to debunk the miracles of scripture instead of just dismissing them with a wave of hand and saying, isn't that quaint, you people and your your little religious book. How cute. But they feel compelled. When, when was the last time you heard or saw the story of Cinderella and you felt compelled to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. Pumpkins don't turn into carriages and mice don't turn into horses. That's just not scientifically possible. It could not have happened. You don't feel compelled to do that because you know it's a fairy story. You know that it was never meant to be true. No one has ever tried to debunk the reality of the Cinderella story. Fairy tales require no explanation, but when it comes to the Bible, there are so many people who say, I don't believe in the Bible, and yet I'm going to offer up kind of a lame alternative to these stories that you people read and believe. It's almost like maybe there was someone out there who has consistently been saying down through the centuries, did God actually say? Did God really say that he would part the waters of the Red Sea and the people would pass through on dry ground and they would see the deliverance of the Lord their God and they would worship him on the far side of the sea while the armies of Pharaoh... Did God really say that? And many who don't want to outright deny it seem to agree with the German theologian, or so he's called, Rudolf Bultmann, who said, it is, Im sorry, it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the world of spirits and miracles. The fact that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, I don't understand how someone could call himself a theologian, which just means God-knower, or how others could call someone who does not believe in miracles and spirits 
to be someone who knows God. As he taught this at a university in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, he had a couple of students who would later formulate what is known as the new hermeneutic. It was a liberal approach to scripture based on the idea that, quote, the timelessness of the text, we all agree, the text of scripture is timeless, but in this way of looking at it, that necessarily means that it holds new meaning for each new reader. In this way, it is similar to the reader response criticism, which focuses on how a person will experience the text in question. This timelessness also means that the text transcends original historical context, authorial intent, or other dimensions across which a text is evaluated. So, when we want to understand what the book of Leviticus, for instance, was saying to the people of God in the days of Moses, we wouldn't try to get into that Hebrew mindset or understand the situation or the times in which those Hebrew people lived according to this very false hermeneutic. What we would do is just ask ourselves, well, what does that text mean to me right now? So in the end, there's not much difference. One approach leaves us with mere folk tales, like the crossing of the Red Sea, that need to be totally deconstructed and explained if they are to have any meaning for us at all. The other encourages us to simply embrace the folktale. And we're not supposed to ask, what does this parable of Jesus mean to the church in all ages, at all times and places? What does this instruction by the inspired apostle Paul say to the church? We're just supposed to say, what does it mean to us right now here in this place? So we're left with the idea that while scripture might communicate some kind of a spiritual truth, again, in scare quotes, spiritual truth, but it communicates that spiritual truth by telling stories that are not objectively true because they require us to believe that the natural laws which operate in the world are something outside of the providence of God who made the world and everything in it something that could operate quite well completely without him, as one article on another website puts it, a case can be made. This is a Christian website, by the way. A case can be made for ascribing some independent causal power to the laws of nature. What they're saying is that the laws of nature can function independently from the creator God who put them in place and can actually have causal power to accomplish something, and actually they can't. And that's why at the very center, at the core of the Christian faith and the heart of the gospel lies a miracle. In fact, the greatest miracle of all, C.S. Lewis called it the grand miracle, sort of. It was part of the incarnation, and he referred to the incarnation as the grand miracle. And that miracle is communicated to us in propositional statements. It's communicated to us in words that are meant to make sense. So that one of you can hear them and say, well, I know what that means because I speak English and this is what those words mean. And I would say the same thing. And here they are, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 8, 
sorry. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the apostle Paul claims, and he does so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that not only is the resurrection of Jesus Christ of first importance, this is the most important thing that we need to know and understand, he also communicates that it's just one event in a chain of other events. It's part of a story. It's part of the story of Jesus Christ who was incarnate of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary who was born at Bethlehem who lived his life in the regions of Judea and Galilee, who was crucified by the Roman authorities at the request of the Jewish authorities, who was dead, dead, not just mostly dead, all dead. And he was buried in a tomb. They knew how to tell that people were dead in those days. It, it, it was kind of a no-brainer even then, especially when you were looking at somebody who had recently been crucified, the Romans were not stupid. And this dead man was put into a tomb. They brought spices to embalm his body so they knew that he was dead. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, some would have us understand that resurrection as a spiritual thing. It wasn't Jesus' body that was raised up. There are cults out there that hold to this. Apparently now there are those who claim to be evangelical Christians who want to take this same line. That it wasn't Jesus' body that was raised. It was his spirit or some representation of his spirit. We see the risen Christ in the daffodils and the flowers around us. But if the rest of the story is history... If Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, if he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried as a matter of historical fact and as a human being, then why in the world will we suddenly break off this other piece and say, well, Paul wasn't talking about bodily resurrection here. That wouldn't make any sense at all, and it makes Paul's statement make no sense at all. If Jesus died physically and was buried physically, he was also physically resurrected. Not only that, this is the central fact of the Christian faith. And really the central fact of all of history. This is the word of faith that we proclaim, says Paul in Romans. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is so because faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So at the center of our faith is a belief, trust, faith in an event that is unproven and remains unprovable 
by the scientific method. There is no way that empirical science can approach the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and prove that it happened or prove that it didn't happen. The approach taken by those who want to say it didn't happen, by the way, are those who will say, well, we've never seen it happen. So why would we assume that it happened? Them, regardless of all of the witnesses that Paul cites and things like that, are just saying, if it doesn't happen around us all the time, or if it's different somehow from what we see, we've never gone to a funeral and the guy in the box at the front of the church sat up and said, hey, what's going on? So Jesus must not have done that either. But he did. He was raised up physically by the power of God. He appeared to witnesses. And all of this according to the scriptures. That's what we believe and that's how we speak. This is Christianity. Any version of so-called Christianity that does not hold to the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not Christianity. I don't care what they say. It's just not. I could stand up here today and claim I'm a, I'm a good faithful Muslim. I don't know much about it and I don't practice and there's no real reason for me to say that. But in this world where we self-identify as something and then it's up to everybody else to believe that that's the truth, you would have to believe that because I say so, I am a good and faithful Muslim. It's not true. And it's not true for people who claim to be Christian. But do not hold to the central doctrines of the Christian faith. We believe in the God who works wonders and has made known his might among the people. We believe in the God who raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead and who raised him up because us up with him, because this miracle at the center of time, this miracle of Christ's resurrection is, according to our text, inextricably linked to another miracle, not at the same time, but this time at the end of time. As it said in our text, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which clearly Paul was doing just that, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul asked the question, because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now understand the times and the context. There was a sect within Judaism, the Sadducees. You've heard of those guys before. And according to Acts 23, verse 8, the Sadducees believed that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So what we have here is people who claimed to believe in God, but didn't believe in spirits. That's just self-contradictory. It doesn't work. They claimed to be, believe in God, especially God as he was revealed in some sense, how something that doesn't exist can actually reveal himself in the Torah. But they denied miracles, and they denied the whole of the supernatural world. And they believed that with the death of a body, your soul died too. Sadducees said, when you're dead, you're dead. That's all there is. So, you know, 
I guess, enjoy your life. When your body dies, your soul dies. That's what they believe. So they denied the reality of heaven or any kind of afterlife or eternal life. That's one of the reasons why they were always butting heads with Jesus. And they denied the reality of hell too, which we might find a little more pleasant. They denied the very existence of spirit beings like, for instance, the God whose word they claim to follow so scrupulously. So these are people who affirmed that they believed in God and they self-identified as Jews, but in reality, they didn't and they weren't. That's why John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers. And it's why Jesus said, you know, speaking specifically to the Pharisees on this occasion, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, you traverse land and sea to make a single convert, and when he becomes so, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are yourselves. They self-identified as believing religious Jews, and Jesus said, I'm not buying it. You don't believe in the resurrection, you don't believe in eternal life, you don't believe in spirits, you're not good Jews, never mind good Christians. And it appears that some of them had found their way into the church, into the early Christian assemblies, and that they had spread this kind of weird spirituality there too. Teaching in the Christian church, there is no resurrection of the dead, no resurrection of God's people at the end of time. Resurrection is purely a spiritual thing. We are raised from death to something else in this life, and we enjoy it while we can, and then Life is over and you die. Because dead people don't rise. We've never seen it happen. Well, there's those times in the Bible that it apparently did happen, but we have found useful explanations for all of those to prove that that was something other than people actually rising from the dead. Lazarus had a high fever. They put him in a cold tomb. His fever broke. He walked out. In all the history of the world, they would say, we don't have one single medically and scientifically verified account of resurrection. But the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if the resurrection is not a real thing, then Christ has not been raised, and Christianity is not a real thing either. If the resurrection of Jesus is not real, the resurrection at the end of time is not real, and we all may as well just leave right now and go home for some good barbecue. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. Everything that every person who ever stood in this pulpit proclaimed to you was vanity of vanities. Not only that, your faith is vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So if this is all just about spiritual stuff, then I have spent the last 25 years of my life misrepresenting God. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Either there is a resurrection, which includes Jesus, the first fruits, and then those who are his at his coming, or there isn't. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It seems that what the Sadducees wanted and what some Christians still want is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, which calls us to repentance and faith and leads to eternal life for those who are called by the grace of God. It seems that what the Sadducees wanted and some people still want was just a nice, safe religion that made people into good little girls and boys who felt good, who followed the rules, and who encouraged others to do so all the time while playing nice with the world. And honestly, true faith in God wasn't and isn't necessary for this project. In fact, true faith in God might interfere with it. But Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity without this grand miracle is empty and futile. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those believers who have died are not in a better place, as we sometimes say. They are not with the Lord. They have simply perished. They are gone. And that's all there is. Because Paul went on to say, if in this life only, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, Christians freely acknowledge that both the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of those who belong to him at his coming are nothing short of miraculous. We can't raise someone from the dead. Someone is hit by a truck or a bolt of lightning and their heart stops beating. There's this very limited period of time when they can be resuscitated and their heart can be made to start beating and the blood flowing. They can have life restored. But beyond that period of time, they just call the code because you could put their body on machines that would make that stuff happen, but they're dead. Their brain is dead. They are gone. We cannot scientifically resurrect someone who's been dead for three days. We cannot scientifically explain the resurrection of Lazarus or the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection of any of those people in the Old Testament, the widow of Nain's son in the New Testament, and others. We just can't. They are miraculous. They are supernatural events that can only be understood and explained as the direct working of God, making something happen that wouldn't ordinarily happen. There's a famous atheist who said, well, I think it was Richard Dawkins, who said he believes that what happened to Jesus after he died, if Jesus was even a real guy, was the same thing that happens to us all. His body went into the tomb and he decayed and he is gone from the face of the planet. Unless God intervened and raised him from the dead, unless God stepped into the world that he made and accomplished something that just doesn't ordinarily happen. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing. It's something that happens to go against the grain of science and medicine and the whole of enlightenment philosophy. And I really can't say any more about that, but I couldn't say enough about it. Because ultimately the natural order Natural law, as some scientists call it, is really the creator's order. 
And because the creator's order does not and cannot ever function independently of the God who upholds and sustains all things by the word of his power, we need to revise the way that we think about miracles. David Hume, a noted skeptic, defined miracles as some event that supersedes the natural order. And Christians have bought this ever since. And we've tried to explain miracles as God stepping into a fully functioning closed system and making something happen that wouldn't normally happen within that system. We've got to start looking at natural law as God's law and understand that the reason these things function and continue to function in a predictable way is because God made the world and God upholds it and sustains it by the word of his power. Miracles are not God contravening some natural law that's outside of himself. They are God who is at work all the time in every way just working in a little bit different, less common way. If we could understand the world like this, there's a sense in which we could say everything is miraculous. And we say it, but we say it in a way that means if everything is miraculous, nothing is. John Donne once wrote, the ordinary things in nature would be greater miracles than the extraordinary, which we admire most, if they were done but once. Only the daily doing takes off the admiration. We see the grass grow, and this is the function of the created order. God makes it grow. And it's not a miracle to us. It's kind of a pain. We have to go out there and mow it. But then we hear about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and we think, well, that... That right there, that's, that's something special. And all of this is simply to say that to be a Christian is to believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. It is to believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, by whom all things were made. And it is to believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who spoke by the prophets. So ultimately, it's to believe in miracles. Because, in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first for, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, or as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. That statement is going to be very important going forward in the book of Genesis. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. For I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. If he can do it then, there's no reason to think that he hasn't done it before. 
for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass. The saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, open our minds to hear what your spirit is saying to us through your word and give us hearts that believe Get excited about the reality that there is so much more to this world and this universe and this life than what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and experience with our senses. For you are our God and we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. You have called us by your grace and you have worked in us faith and repentance through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as you have done that, we have received eternal and abundant life in Jesus' name. Lord, help us to believe and then to live in the light of your glorious grace given to us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.